friends, it's Easter Sunday. If you have not been with us over the last few, wow, gosh, months now, I guess, uh, we've been in a sermon series, and we started with Genesis, and then we're moving through Exodus. And when I first started planning the sermon series, I got super excited because I realized where the weeks were going to fall. So we started all the way back in January with Genesis 1, and then we went story by story through Genesis, and we went straight into Exodus, and the way that the stories just fell, um, last week, Palm Sunday, was the week of pass. we talked about Passover in Exodus, and this week we're talking about uh, the escape from Egypt and Egypt's uh, Pharaoh's army being drowned in the Red Sea, and you might not be excited about that, but I was super excited that it was going to fall on Easter Sunday because what we're going to talk about is that Christians have for a very long time looked at those stories from the Old Testament and seen this is what God did in Jesus, just in a different way. And if that makes no sense to you, that's what we're going to unpack this morning. So I want to go back a little bit and t- a recap for you where we started back in Genesis. So Genesis started with God creating the world to be good, to be his dwelling place, to be his temple, his home. We were his image bearers. Humanity was his image bearers, created to bear his image to creation. And then in Genesis 3, all of that got broken. And so the world was fundamentally good, but then broken. And what that meant practically was that instead of, uh, we were still his image bearers, but we did it in a way that was broken, that brought destruction into the world. And so very, um, as immediately after Genesis 3, we have Genesis 4, which is the story of Cain and Abel, which is a brother killing another brother. And so this, this brokenness that gets introduced very early in the story, um, this brokenness that gets introduced in Genesis 3 goes down to the root of the human creature and to the root of creation and changes us from people who are meant to show God to each other to people who actually show deception and destruction to each other. So it broke our relationship with our our fellow human beings. It broke our relationship with God. It broke our relationship with the created order. Everything got out of whack. That was what happened between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. And what happens in the rest of the story of salvation is God trying to set, not trying to, God setting right, setting about, the task of setting right what went wrong with Genesis 3. Throughout the rest of Genesis, we see God doing that by uh, narrowing in on a particular family. He narrows in on Abraham first, makes his covenant with Abraham. The covenant passes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then it passes to 12 brothers, hence the 12 tribes of Israel. And the image is that God is narrowing in on this one family so that through them, God might bless the world. So the covenant, I will bless you, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so then that people, those 12 brothers, move into Egypt. And at first, they are honored guests in Egypt. And then a few hundred years pass, and a new pharaoh arises, and they become not welcome in Egypt, and they are enslaved in Egypt. And so the book of Exodus opens with this image that the Genesis 3 sin, which in Genesis we primarily saw in the family, now has political legitimacy. So in Genesis, we saw this brokenness played out between brothers, played out within the family. In Exodus, we see the brokenness all of a sudden with political power. And we have this image, this archetype that's given to us of Pharaoh and Egypt. Pharaoh's never named because Pharaoh is standing in and the story is this archetype of the mad king, the evil dictator, the villain that has existed throughout history who thinks he is God. And so Pharaoh 
embodies Genesis 3, right? Embodies the oppression, embodies the injustice. Pharaoh actually orders all of the Hebrew boys to be thrown into the Nile. Pharaoh orders the enslavement of the Israelites. Pharaoh orders all of this injustice and oppression and evil. And it's legal because Pharaoh ordered it. And so in Exodus, we have this theological question, what does God do with evil of that scale? And what we've been seeing throughout the last couple of weeks is that God does not turn a blind eye, but God actually entered into the showdown with Pharaoh. And if you want to hear any of these sermons, they're all on the website, especially the last couple of weeks building up to this sermon. God went to Pharaoh through Moses and said, let my people go. They are my people, not yours. I am God, not you. And Pharaoh, who did not know God, and said, who is this God? Pharaoh refused. And so then we had the plagues coming against Egypt, escalating and escalating and escalating. With everyone, Pharaoh refused again. And so there is a showdown between God and Pharaoh. Who is God? Who is king? Who is actually going to rule this creation? Who is going to get the name king and ruler and lord of all? And the plagues escalated and escalated and escalated. And then last week, we talked about that final plague. And the final plague was when God visited upon Egypt the judgment of doing to them what they had done to others. So whereas Egypt had thrown the children of the Hebrews into the Nile, when God passed over Egypt, the firstborn of Egypt were all struck down. And they not only released the Israelites from slavery, but pushed them out. That night they said, get out from among us. Get out from among us or we will all die. And so the Israelites left slavery and walked forward into freedom. But it was, the story was not yet over. Because as they walked toward the wilderness, as they went toward freedom, Pharaoh yet again had a change of heart. And he said... We must go after the Israelites or we will lose their service. Think of the economic loss we are sustaining from letting all of the Israelites go. And so he got his warriors and his chariots. And remember, the image that we get in this story is that Egypt is a superpower. Egypt is one of the only world superpowers all the political power, all the military power, all the economic power, that's, that's the image that we're getting of Egypt. And Israel is a slave nation, right? And so they let, he let them free, but then he's coming after them with the full force of all of Egypt's military might. And he thinks he has them cornered because they are up against the Red Sea. Now, even if you didn't know any of the rest of the story I told, you probably are with me when we get to this part because you probably were up late one Saturday night before Easter and saw Charlton Heston on the screen extending his staff over the Red Sea. Um, What happens next is one of the most iconic and important scenes, not only in the Hebrew scriptures, but in Christian theology. What happens next is this. Pharaoh is coming from behind, The Israelites are pressed against the Red Sea. God says to Moses, stretch out your staff. And so Moses stands on a rock and he stretches out his staff over the Red Sea and the waters part. And the children of Israel, the people of God, walk across on dry land. And Pharaoh decides to pursue. 
And so all the might of Egypt comes after them. And they are beginning to get panicked again because all of the children of Israel are on the other side now. And Pharaoh stands on the other side of the Red Sea and he puts out his staff. And the Red Sea closes over Pharaoh and his armies. And the psalm goes, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The armies of Pharaoh were drowned and were no more. Now, whenever I preach this to a 21st century audience, uh, 21st century congregation, we all get a little bit squeamish with the idea of um, God killing anyone or bad guys getting killed. Part of what you have to do here is you have to realize the typology that's happening. Egypt, Egypt, capital E in this story, is a stand-in for evil, right? This is a stand-in for the forces that are opposing God. Pharaoh's, the reason Pharaoh's never named is that Pharaoh in the story is an archetype of evil. The king that opposes God, the dictator that opposes God. Everyone who has ever sat in a throne and claimed to be God and that there is no other room for God... And the theological message that is proclaimed in this story is that God wins because God is king. God wins because God is king. Now that's the story as it's presented to us in Exodus. But here's where it gets interesting. Ever since the first couple of years of Christianity, Christians have looked at that story and they've seen a parallel between what God did in Egypt and what God did in Jesus And this parallel started because it was the night of Passover that Jesus went to the cross. In fact, on that Passover night, sitting with his disciples, partaking in a Passover meal, Jesus drew intentional theological parallels between what they were talking about at that Passover meal and what he was about to do on the cross. And so from then, Christians looked back and they saw the power of the cross and they said that was the final plague But it was God's firstborn that was being killed this time, and he was being killed to rescue God's people from another slavery, another Egypt, another Pharaoh. And the typology they saw was this. The new Egypt and the new Pharaoh was not just the petty dictators that sit over us. It was actually the forces of Genesis 3. It was the power of sin and death. And God had in mind to rescue all of his creation from the power of sin and death. God had in mind to rescue all of his image bearers from the evil that is deep-seated within the human heart that is repeated over and over, generation after generation, from the evil that is, has woven itself up in, into the nature of creation. God had in mind to rescue his image bearers from being people that kill their brothers, that enslave each other, and that stand thinking that they are God. And so on the night that he went to the cross... As he was being nailed to the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what he do. Why would he say that? Because the man putting the nails in his hand was not the enemy. The man putting the nails in his hand was not who he was coming to judge. It was the sin and the evil that held that man's heart captive. That was what God came to judge. That was what God came to overthrow. That was what, on the night of the cross, fundamentally 
Pharaoh's power was cut on the night of the final plague, on the night of the cross. The, the, the power of the evil one, the evil, the, the sin and evil, however you want to say this, the powers of sin and death were fundamentally overcome. But Pharaoh didn't realize that it happened until he got to the Red Sea. And nobody realized what had happened until the third day when Jesus rose from the dead. And all of a sudden, the victory became apparent, not just to the children of Israel, but to Egypt. And everyone realized that what God had done was fundamentally overthrow the powers of sin and death. From the very early days of Christianity, when Christians celebrate Easter, they proclaim a new Passover, a new covenant. And they proclaimed that God had drowned in the Red Sea. The Pharaoh's, the Pharaoh's army got drowned. God had drowned in the Red Sea the powers of sin and death. In fact, in the fourth century, people coming for uh, baptism in Jerusalem, this leader named Cyril of Jerusalem, he would have them study for 40 days during Lent. And then on Easter Sunday, when they came for baptism, he would have them stand at the baptismal pool. Side note, they were also naked, but that was, we don't tend to do that again today. But the idea of like spiritually cleansing, coming naked before God, we take a symbolic view of that one. But they would stand before the baptismal pool, and he instructed them to stretch out their hand over the pool like Pharaoh stretching out his staff and rebuke the armies of Pharaoh. Like Moses stretching out his staff. I said that the wrong way, right? Like Moses stretching out his staff and rebuke the armies of Pharaoh. And then as they went through the baptismal pool, the proclamation was the army of Pharaoh has been drowned again. The army of Pharaoh has been drowned again. That part of me, which participated with the enemy, has been drowned again. That part of me that was a citizen of Egypt rather than a citizen of God was drowned again. The armies of Pharaoh have been drowned. And from the earliest days of Christianity, the Easter proclamation was that Genesis 3 no longer held power was that the brokenness no longer had power because the resurrection meant that the cosmic armies of Pharaoh, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea, and the armies of Pharaoh have been drowned. Okay, there's two ways I want to look at this. Because as you're, as you're thinking through, I can, see, I can see the wheels in your head turning right now, and I can read your thoughts. Um, and then there's two different ways that you can kind of take this angle and look at it. And I want us to do both of them. The first way is this. You take this angle and you look inside. What does it mean for the army of Pharaoh to be drowned within me? Because I'll tell you what, proclaiming that Pharaoh's armies are drowned is really good news unless you're a member of Pharaoh's army. And it's really bad news. It's really bad news. And the truth of the matter is we proclaim that there is an enemy of creation that is not creation, right? There is an enemy on the outside. There is an evil and a wickedness and a sin. But it's also true that you and I can participate with that enemy. And you know it's true. You know it's true. You know what it's like to feel a little bit of anger and then just give into it whole, whole hog. You know what that feeling? You know what it's like to feel a little bit of bitterness and resentment and then to just, oh, give in to that bitterness because you were so right. You know what it's like to feel a little bit of pride and then to stand your ground 
and say, I am the only one who should be on a throne over my life. The first thing this interpretation does is it tells us to look at our hearts and check for signs of Egypt. Because friends, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Pharaoh's armies are drowned. Make sure you are not among them. Pharaoh's armies are drowned. Pharaoh's armies are in the process of being drowned every day because the final victory of God is coming and that is good news for everyone who is not a member of Pharaoh's army. And that affects us from the littlest level of the the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis as we interact with our families and we interact with strangers and we interact with beloved children of God. And it affects us at the big levels. What job we choose to take how much money we choose to give or not give, big life decisions. I had one man tell me that it was wrestling with this text that actually made him quit his job. Because he realized, once he understood this typology, the difference between the children of Israel and the armies of Pharaoh, he realized that if Pharaoh and his armies were going to get drowned in the Red Sea, all of his job, all of his business was going with it. And it wasn't, that, um, it wasn't that they weren't necessarily doing anything illegal. It's that they were, his words, working for things that were not in line with what God wants for the world. And I actually pressed back on him in this conversation. I said, well, are you sure God isn't putting you there to be a light in a dark place? And he goes, I mean, I believe God does that. But honestly, the, what I like most about it is the money I make, not the witness I bear. And I said, okay, you said it, not me. You said it, not me. Check your heart for signs of Egypt. Check your heart for signs of Egypt. You do not want to forget to do this every day for the rest of your life. You don't. And if Easter Sunday is the only wake-up call you get, don't miss it. Don't miss it. The pride, the arrogance, the believing that everything is mine and not God's, The taking what God tells you to do as like suggestion, (laughs) that's a sign of Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets an instruction from God and he goes, well, I'll think about it. Children of Israel get an instruction from God and they obey, right? Because God is God and we are not. Because all this world is God's and it is not ours. Because all of the image bearers with whom we share company are God's. They're not ours. Check your heart for signs of Egypt. And let me just say real quickly, if you, this is an ongoing thing. You'll never stop doing it as a Christian. But you just say, God, I want to be a part of your family. Please take from me anything that is not of you. And then you just keep showing up and you keep praying that prayer. God does not need your perfection, but he needs your participation. So that's the first thing. Check your heart for signs of Egypt. Second thing this does is this changes the way we look at each other, Right? This changes the way we look at each other. Because if the enemy is the enemy, capital E enemy, and that enemy has been drowned in the Red Sea, then what it means is all of my fellow image bearers with whom I share this life on earth might participate with that enemy, but they are not fundamentally my enemy. Right? Do you see the change that makes? This is why Jesus preached so much about loving your enemy. This is why Jesus preached so much about forgiving your enemy. This is why Jesus was able to say, Father, forgive them when people nailed him to a cross because the enemy wasn't them. 
And I don't know whether he succeeded or not, but God died so that those people might be rescued from the sin and the evil that was enslaving them and might become the full children of God that they were created to be. Now, what does this mean for you on a tangible day-to-day basis as you go throughout your life trying to be a child of God? Friends, it means that everyone you have called your enemies is not your enemy. So I don't know who needs to hear this, but your spouse is not your enemy. Your mother is not your enemy. Your coworker is not your enemy. Your brother is not your enemy. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Hitler's not your enemy. Did I cover it all? Here's the thing. It doesn't mean people can't participate with the enemy. They do. But our response as the people of God is to pray for their release from that enemy and to the best of our ability, work for it. Not to wish God's vengeance and judgment upon them because God's vengeance and judgment already came out and it was in the right place. It was on the armies of Pharaoh. I had one woman tell me she'd grown up... uh, in a terrible household with a terrible father. Um, And I'm not going to go into details, but just imagine the most graphic thing you can. You probably get it right. And she had a conversation with me once because she said that most of her Christian walk has been learning how to deal with that, right? So how how do you forgive someone who never asked for forgiveness? How do you forgive someone who betrayed one of the most basic trusts that children have of their parents, that they're not going to be hurt by their parents? How do you live with that as a Christian and that was a lifelong process for her if you've ever been in that process you know it doesn't end you just keep showing up to God and he keeps working your heart and he keeps taking out a little bit more bitterness and taking out a little bit more anger and then you show up again and he just keeps working your heart and she said she knew one day she knew that she had reached a point in her Christian walk where she'd finally forgiven her father and it was because on the day he died she hoped that he was in heaven. Right? On the day he died, she said, I don't know, I didn't have contact with him in the last several years of his life, but I hope that God was able to deal with whatever demons were within him, and I hope that God was able to to root out, and I hope that he was able to open himself, even at the end of the life, to let some grace in, and to be redeemed into the person he was created to be and not the monster he lived his life as. I hope he was saved because the enemy sure had a hold of him. Do you hear the difference Easter makes in how you see the world? Friends, the proclamation of this morning. Pharaoh and his armies have been drowned. Pharaoh and his armies have been drowned. The enemy has been overcome. And any participation with the enemy that we see in this life at this time is a final skirmish of a battle that is coming to a close possibly faster than you and I would like. Pharaoh's armies have been drowned. And so let us as people, the children of Israel, people of God, Rejoice in that victory and proclaim the power of that victory with our very lives. In the 
the days of slavery in the United States, there was a, a spiritual that was written, and we don't know who wrote it because much of that history is known only to God and will be revealed only at the last day. But in the darkest days of slaveholding in the southern United States, there were slaves that started to sing this song, Mary, Don't Weep. You know the song? Mary, Don't You Weep. Mary, Don't You Weep. And they were speaking to Mary, the sister of Moses. They were speaking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they were speaking to Mary, the anonymous slave woman who was watching her child be sown at auction. And you know what the chorus of that, that spiritual is? Mary, Don't You Weep. Pharaoh's armies got drowned. Mary, don't you weep. And that was not an idle hope that someday one would be better. That was a proclamation that evil has been judged and will be judged. And that's what Easter Sunday means. Evil has been judged and will be judged. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. And the end of the story is life for all of those who receive it. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty Heavenly Father, we've, we confess that there are times when we have looked at Pharaoh's army and we have given it more power than you have. We confess that there are times that we have feared for the horse and the rider that are coming after us. And God, we confess that there are times that we have joined Pharaoh's army and been on the wrong side of this battle. And so, Heavenly Father, come. We are here on this Easter Sunday. Break us open. Break open our hearts. Break open our spirits. Break open our souls. Fill us with yourself. And put in our mouths the song that your armies are overcome, that your armies have won and Pharaoh's army is drowned, and all is well in the end. Come, Holy Spirit. We repent of the ways that we have partnered with the enemy, we declare you are our king and we put ourselves wholly in your kingdom and in your family, now and forever. This we pray as we say together the prayer our Lord taught, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, this is the point in our service that we call the offering. And the offering is about God wanting all of what you have to be used for what he is going to do. And so we talk about giving your prayers and your presence and your gifts and your service and your witness. I'm gonna invite you to take the next two minutes to pray. And some of you need to give yourselves to God and put yourselves in his family and his kingdom. Some of you need to give a gift of your time or your presence. Whatever it is, the world's about to start. The sugar rush is going to come back as soon as you leave these doors. And so don't miss these two minutes because this sacred holy time is what Easter is all about. Offer yourself back to the God who offered himself to you. You can pray at the front. You can pray in the back. You've got people to pray with you. You can pray on your seat. Offer yourself back to the God who offered himself to you.